it's just so different from like my previous life of pushing paper. Whereas now it's like we've created something out of thin air that tens of thousands of people around the world are actually using and getting value from. It's a pretty incredible feeling. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Hey, yo, welcome back to the pod. One of the interesting things about these strange times is there have been some pretty sharp threads happening over at twitter.com. And one of the posters I've been enjoying is someone who I've met through our in-person events in Bangkok, DCBKK. And I just found him to be a really all-around thoughtful person, someone you want to speak with about business. His name is Christopher Gimmer, and he's the co-founder and CEO of Snappa, which is a SaaS or a software as a service tool that allows non-designers to easily create cool online graphics. So Chris recently tweeted a reflection about the difference between the highs and lows he's experienced as an entrepreneur as opposed to those he went through in his previous career working in corporate finance in his native Canada. So I thought it would be cool to invite him on the show and, and share some of his thoughts with us. And something I've been thinking about, you know, emotional management as you go through different stages of your career, because, you know, sometimes you feel like you've done so much, but yet new challenges face us that sometimes look a little bit different than the challenges we used to encounter on a day-to-day -day basis. And on the one hand, you can feel exhausted by that and frustrated by that. On the other hand, you can look at it as this amazing opportunity and a privilege to be able to participate in the sorts of challenges that have the incredible payoffs that, say, running a SaaS business does. Now, Christopher may have left the corporate world behind, but I think you can still see his uh, sharp financial chops and a lot of things he and his co-founder have been doing in Snappa, including investing in Bitcoin. And we'll go into that a little bit on the show. We'll also cover the pros and cons of the SaaS business model. You know, so many founders that have had the most exceptional results that have been on this show have done it through that business model. So we'll dig into that a little bit, as well as the value of having a co-founder. You know, are you missing out if you don't have a co-founder. So we'll get into that. So I hope you enjoy this one. I started off by asking Christopher about the inflection point for deciding to leave what looked like a pretty stellar corporate career. I mean, I was following the traditional life script to a T. Go to school, you know, get a good job, you know, make sure to secure your pension. And so I was about I want to say six years into my career, which at the time I was working as a financial analyst for the government. And you get to that point where it's just like, wow, it's like the same stuff day in and day out and not feeling like you're really making a difference. And so there's two moments. One was whenever I would attend these like retirement parties, the people retiring were so freaking happy. And I always used to say to myself, like, I can't imagine having to wait 30 years to be happy. You know what I mean? Like that's all that they were looking forward to is a retirement. So that was kind of like red flag number one for me. And then the other one was the first time I, I took a trip to Southeast Asia with a, a buddy of mine. 
And it was just like such a life changing experience for me. And to know that like, I can only do this three weeks every year, having to like, you know, bank that vacation time. So it was the combination of those two things, where I kind of just first started to think about like, maybe I could be doing something different right now. It seems to me, though, you know, there's this kind of big idea of freedom that you could have, but then you're making good money. What sort of steps did you start to take to like bridge that gap? Because it feels enormous. So one of the things that happened was at my work, I met Mark, who's my, my co-founder now at Snappa. He did like programming on the side. And we were like the two young dudes in our office, whereas everyone else, you know, was a lot older and every like lunch meeting, they were just talking about like building decks and stuff with the kids. And just like, we just couldn't relate to it. Right. And, you know, we were just talking about like completely different things. The more that we became friends and talked, like he kind of shared the same mindset where, you know, he's the classic version of like an unemployable, you know, Mark's a very creative person and, you know, he like thinks outside the box a lot. So yeah, we just started like scheming some stuff and what are the side projects that that we can work on and that we can do on kind of nights and weekends and that's kind of where it where it all started. We were kind of spinning our wheels for for the first couple of years and then that's when I really started to, you know, listen to podcasts like yourself and stars for the rest of us and and reading blogs about how to do online marketing and learning about SEO. You know, after a few failed projects, we started a, a marketplace for bootstrap templates. And that's where we started making our first couple grand a month online. And it was just like a game changing feeling like even making a thousand bucks a month. It's like you start to envision the possibilities. Like if I just multiply this by 10, we can now earn a living wage, we can we can quit our jobs. And all of a sudden, like the energy and excitement really started to kind of take hold. Okay, so even for me now, I'm trying to think of myself as like, I'm not unemployable. I had the travel experience. I had the good salary and I'm tinkering and I know there's podcasts and all this stuff. But then you just said something like, we put up a marketplace <laughs> for templates. <laughs> now that's where you lost me. How do you become a person who just starts a marketplace? Tell me about that progression. I started reading some stuff about dropshipping and that to me felt very doable and, and approachable. So we were actually trying to find keywords and kind of different products that, that we can dropship. You know, with a tool like Ahrefs, for example, you can, you know, plug in different keywords. So a keyword could be like fancy socks. And then from there, you could see, you know, how many people are searching for that keyword each month? What's the difficulty? You know, who's ranking for that currently? How many backlinks they have to their site? While we were doing this, Mark had actually kind of stumbled upon the keyword bootstrap themes and bootstrap templates. And for the non-developers out there, it's essentially bootstrap is, is a front end CSS framework. So it's it's essentially like a WordPress framework, but without the, the back end stuff. It's it's just the design component, essentially. So Bootstrap, basically what it allows you to do is instead of having to style all of the buttons and the tables and the, and the boxes from scratch, it gives you a starting point that makes your website like mobile responsive out of the box. 
this was a pretty new framework at the time. And we noticed like there was a ton of search volume for bootstrap themes and bootstrap templates. And there was only kind of one dominant like niche marketplace. And, you know, we maybe naively thought like, well, we can kind of create our own. And we thought that there was, you know, little things here and there that, that we can do better. And then we, we ended up uh, launching with that. Well, I guess one of the things this SEO approach allows you to do is, is sort of look at actual cash flows rather than like trying to come up with a business idea. Because like when you say I started a marketplace for themes, it feels like, oh my God, you're freaking genius. But when you look at the process, it feels like, well, you were actually just shopping around for things that people were interested in. There's two really cool things about SEO. Number one is being able to measure the demand. And the second really cool thing is that it's a, well, quote unquote, free marketing channel. So you don't actually have to pay to, you know, display. Rather, you can write content that kind of ranks organically. So I think it's a it's a really good channel for people that are trying to start this up on the side and maybe don't have the capital or kind of unwilling to put in certain capital. Uh, so for us, it was pure sweat equity. So, you know, we would go to our jobs, we would make the money there, and then we would kind of pour in all our free time into, you know, this side project. Mark was basically doing all the programming and the coding, and I was just like writing content, trying to get backlinks, and just doing that over, you know, a couple months period. Now, if you thought the belief in starting a business was difficult and believing that your effort's going to pay off, what happens then? You have that first breakthrough. You sort of have a success. And then a few years down the line, things start to plateau. You have to have an incredible amount of endurance and belief and experience. And I'll just share from my experiences that success in business, unlike stock market charts, say, for example, it doesn't look like a line. Often you have to struggle for a very long time, and then you feel empowered to make a move. And in this story, as with so many others, one of our favorite concepts came into play. In the words of the host of Startups for the Rest of Us, Rob Walling, Christopher had to find a way to stair-step forward. The main issue, like I said, is there was a dominant player. And the thing with marketplaces is the first mover has a massive advantage, right? Because there, there are network effects. So naturally, if you've got the most buyers already, the sellers are going to gravitate towards your marketplace because it's the, the highest chance of selling their themes. And naturally, the marketplace that has the most sellers on it are going to attract the most buyers because of the supply. And that's exactly why Amazon is like dominating the world right now, just because of all the, the network effects that they built up. So what we ran into was we were able to rank, I think at our peak, we got to like number three in Google for the keyword bootstrap themes and bootstrap templates. And at that point, I think we we're doing like maybe four grand in profit a month or something like that. But we knew that it was going to be like this huge uphill battle to try to topple number one, because again, of that first mover advantage and all the network effects and the margins on the business were way too small. So we couldn't afford to do any sort of paid advertising. And then that's when we started wanting to get into the software as a service space and recurring revenue just because the business model was was so much better than 
taking a, a percentage of theme sales and, and not having any sort of like proprietary IP. How many months or years did this take you to get to this point? So we launched Bootstrap A April of 2014, and it took a good three to six months before we were doing like a couple grand in revenue, I would say. And then by the end of the year is when we kind of got to that like eight to 10K a month in top line revenue. So you guys were moving pretty fast though. Yes. The one caveat is that the first thing we ever launched, which was like a student dating website, that was back in 2012. So there was kind of a two-year period of like spinning wheels and not knowing what we're doing. And so when we launched Bootstrap A, that is when we felt like we kind of somewhat knew what we were doing, right? So there, there was definitely a learning period there. When did you quit your job? When Bootstrap A got to the point where it was doing a couple grand in profit, I initially took a leave of absence. But the scary thing with that is like, I was actually in the middle of doing my CPA accounting designation. And uh, my work was paying for it. And I had accepted a promotion on the basis that I would, you know, complete this designation. <laughs> so I, I could have got into a pretty embarrassing situation where like, had I come back to work, I would have got demoted and had to pay back the money on top of that. But fortunately, it, you know, everything kind of worked out. And then when we launched Snappa, and we saw that, you know, we, we had quite a bit of traction, I then officially kind of handed in my, my resignation. Bring me into the office when you're asking for that leave of absence. What is it? What does that conversation feel like? Man, that, that was one of the most like nervous and scariest moments of my life because like in my heart, like I knew it was the right thing. But, you know, my brain is like, man, you're making like, you know, I was making close to six figures at that time. I was going to get a sweet pension when I retired. And my parents are more of the, you know, risk averse type people as well. And so it was just kind of battling like, you know, the heart's telling you one thing, the, the brain's telling you one thing. How did it feel walking out of there? It felt amazing walking out of there. Like going in was nervous as hell, but it just felt like there was this massive weight lifted off my shoulders. There was still a bit of like stress and anxiety in the sense that, you know, I had a house and bills and, and whatnot. So like I was, you know, dipping into my savings, not a huge amount, but like still I was spending more than I was bringing in. Let's put it that way. I, you know, I went from making close to six figures a year to I think we're paying ourselves like $1,500 a month just to kind of eat and, and pay for, for certain stuff. But I just had the faith and the confidence that, you know, if I bet on myself in the long run, I'll be successful at it. How would you describe the difference between moonlighting on a business Versus giving it your full-time energy. For myself, I, I would have never been able to just like quit my job and literally start a business from scratch, like at ground zero. To me, that would have been way too stressful. I know that, you know, there's some people that do subscribe to that, like the burn your boats approach and just go all in. I, I would have been way too stressed out to do that. But then what we found was that you kind of get to this point where it's like you have the momentum, you see the traction, but you're only able to put in so much time. Let's say you're writing one piece of content per week and it's bringing you certain results. 
well, if you can write four pieces of content a week, or if you can get double the backlinks that you were getting previously, you would kind of expect that your results, the business results would increase, right? You mentioned you're playing the long game, yet you have this project that the medium term outcome seems to be that you've reached your full potential with the marketplace. Well, when I took the the leave of absence from work, we hadn't yet reached that. Like at that time, we I don't think we were like number three, like we might have been like, you know, number six or number seven. So I knew that like we still had some ways to go before we were to even reach that plateau. When we did kind of get to that feeling of like, crap, we're plateauing. I had already taken the leave of absence at that point. But even then it was like, okay, we have this thing. Let's let's try to build off of that. And that's kind of when we realized like, man, it, it, it's going to be a, a big uphill battle. That's when we really started getting into the idea of like SaaS and recurring revenue. Because, you know, with a marketplace, you're theoretically starting from zero every single month. We just kind of knew that it was time. It was like as Rob Walling kind of coined the the stair-stepping approach, I kind of felt like Bootstrap Bay was kind of that first or maybe that second step uh, for us. And we knew that like, okay, we want to get to that third step. We want to get to that, the holy grail of, of recurring revenue and SaaS. Today's sponsor is Earth Class Mail. I had many friends who've used Earth Class Mail and many listeners of this pod depend on Earth Class Mail when they don't have a physical U.S. address. It can be a problem for many of us. Earth Class Mail is an online service that makes it easy for you to live and work anywhere in the world without worrying about your postal mail. Earth Class Mail enables you to have your mail delivered to a U.S.-based address. Earth Class Mail will scan and digitize your postal mail so you can easily manage it from anywhere, anytime. That's right. Read your mail from any device, physically store it, forward it worldwide, or even have it securely shredded all from your phone or your laptop. Plus, you'll get paid faster with automatic check deposits. You can take comfort in knowing that your data is encrypted during transfer and your mail is processed in a secure facility by HIPAA certified technicians. Postal mail doesn't have to hold you back from living the lifestyle you want. Virtual mail plans start at just $19 per month. And Tropical MBA listeners get 25% off their Earth Class Mail subscriptions for their first three months. What an incredible deal. Go check it out. Our new sponsor is so happy to have them on board. EarthClassMail.com slash Tropical MBA. This is a moment, I guess I kind of think of it as like a parlay. Theoretically, you know you want recurring revenue. How do you make that shift into going a different direction? So an interesting thing happened around that time when we were kind of like, you know, we want to get into the the SaaS game. So one of the blogs that I followed pretty religiously back then was, was Backlinko, which was like an SEO blog. And so Brian Dean, he has this technique he he coined called the the skyscraper technique and essentially what it is is like you find content that's already done well make your own version that's like 10 times better and then kind of promote that content to the the people that were linking to the existing one i was on reddit one day and noticed that someone compiled a list of free stock photo resources and it got like a ton of upvotes on reddit and this is when the sites like you know unsplash and 
some of these like creative commons, really nice stock photo sites were coming out. It's like, oh, it's really interesting. And so naturally, like developers and, and designers that were using our marketplace, you know, they're always kind of looking at for stock photos for themes and whatnot. So essentially, I just kind of took those resources, you know, added a bit more and turned it into like a really beefy blog post. And when I posted that, it ended up going viral on on a couple of the, the social media sites. And so after a couple months, like we actually started ranking on the first page of Google for free stock photos, which is like just an incredibly difficult keyword to rank for. And so we were getting like tens of thousands of people coming to this one blog post. And then at the same time, we, we kind of had this idea for, you know, what ended up becoming Snappa because, you know, I had to create all the graphics for the Bootstrap Bay blog. And I was using Photoshop and I wasn't a graphic designer. So it just became like a real pain in the ass, quite frankly. Our idea was we have this blog post that's getting tons of traffic and we're just linking out to all these other stock photo resources. And at the time, none of them had search functionality. They were just releasing like seven new photos every 10 days or something like that. So we thought like, why don't we just create our own and actually make it searchable and we can just start with a collection of like a thousand or two thousand of, of the best Creative Commons photos. And so we ended up launching a website called stocksnap.io. We ended up selling it later on as well as Bootstrap AFYI. So at that point, we then started getting all this traffic to both the blog posts and our free stock photo site. And then that's when we were like, okay, this, this is how we can parlay this thing. We can create our graphic design tool and we can use this blog post and our free stock photo site to promote our design tool because of that overlap with the audience. And that's kind of how we did that like next jump to the SaaS app. And how'd it go? It went really well. Like we basically just threw up a landing page. Uh, I think it took Mark about like five or six months to... Well, I think three months to do kind of like the beta. And then we we did a kind of like a beta launch and collected some feedback, fixed some bugs or whatnot. And then we ended up launching it officially three months after that. But it worked really well because, you know, every single day we just had people that were coming on the free stock photo site, which would click on the the banner or the, or the ad for the, the design tool. We would collect their email address. So by the time we officially launched the, the SaaS tool, I mean, we already had like, 5,000 people on the on the email list or something like that. And so a week after launching, we were doing $2,000 in, in MRR. And I think by the end of the month, we were doing like $4,000 in, in MRR. And that's monthly recurring revenue. Yeah, monthly recurring revenue. So I mean, for us, it was like, holy cow, like we're, we're onto something here. Like for us, that was a, that was a huge deal. And now for reference, your monthly MRR is what? So today we're at uh, just over 118k in monthly recurring revenue. It's such an amazing steep line between those two figures. Is SaaS everything the theory told you it was? I would say it aligned pretty well with our experience in that it's a bit slower in the beginning. Or when I looked at our MRR graph, it took us three years to make our first 50k in MRR. And then it took only a year and a half to make the next 50K in MRR. And now because of COVID, I mean, this is kind of a fluke thing, but it's it's almost accelerating even more. And so that that is the beauty of SaaS is that like it's slow in the beginning. It takes a bit of a while to get going. 
but then you it kind of just like feeds on itself and you start building that flywheel and i feel like that's kind of what we're experiencing now why is it slow in the beginning you have to build out those like marketing channels and there's also like the word of mouth and the thing with with SaaS the reason why it's it's so great is because the revenue is recurring but the downside of that is your monthly amount that you're charging is much lower whereas historically with software you would charge them you know at least a year up front if not like multiple years up front so that's kind of the catch 22 is like when you first start a SaaS app your monthly recurring revenue is generally like really low because it just takes time to build it up but then kind of on the back end of that you really start to see the benefits just because it's it's stable it's easier to forecast your growth and the best of both worlds is if you can work in a portion of your pricing to be yearly plans and that way you kind of get the best of both worlds what do you think it was about that $50,000 mark that contributed to momentum? So for us was a big portion of our marketing is is content and SEO. And so that's, you know, another one of those marketing channels where like it just takes time to get going. But once once it gets going, um it it just becomes a flywheel, right? So in the beginning when your website doesn't have a lot of backlinks and domain authority and you publish a new blog post, Google's not going to take it seriously right away or, or they're not just going to start ranking you. Whereas if you have, you know, three, four years of credibility and backlinks built up, as soon as you start publishing a new blog post, Google will kind of take that seriously from day one, as opposed to taking years <laughs> to, to build up the credibility to, to rank your posts. I'm thinking of the stair-step approach now, Rob Walling's famous theory. And you're you're talking about these things like you know, it takes time to build momentum, it takes time to build credibility. And is the idea as you understand it that had back in 2012 or 13, you attempted to do something like Snappa, that it would have been super risky, because the feedback loops take so long. Is that the idea? There's that. And also, it's just difficult to build a SaaS business than it is to to launch a dropshipping business or, or info products. There's just so much more of a learning curve. Like if we had launched Snappa in 2012, it wouldn't have worked out. Like <laughs> I know that for, for Dancer. And so I think what Rob is kind of advocating is like, just start with something easier. Like start with one marketing channel, get good at that one marketing channel, learn how to just build a simple WordPress plugin that already has built-in distribution and once you've mastered that, then move on to the next thing, which, you know, now you're talking about the product development is going to be more difficult, the, the marketing channels are going to be difficult, it's probably you, you don't have that built in kind of distribution through the WordPress plugin re- repository or the app store, and all that kind of stuff. It's like you really have to build all of those channels and acquisition sources uh, out yourself. Again, grafting theory onto what was your practical experience. We talk a lot about on the TMBA having to take a step back from where you were in your professional career and you kind of have to believe that these parlays are going to come and that you're going to be like involved in something profitable, which is strange given it's all that dark cloud. What do you think about that idea that you do have to sort of be broke when you were already doing good in your life in order to do this entrepreneurship path? There's that like cliche quote, I forget exactly, but it's something like, 
to be an entrepreneur, you have to live your life uh, or a couple years of your life like no one's willing to do to for the long term. I, I, I butcher that insanely, but <laughs> <laughs> you guys will have to look up the real quote. But that's kind of how I felt at the moment. You have to live like three years like nobody wants to so you can live the rest of your life like nobody can. Something like that. Yeah, 100%. And as cliche and cheesy as it is, uh, I think there is quite a bit of truth to that. So like, I know for myself, the next kind of level up for me would have been that like, past the six figures, but like, it's not even about money or anything. But I knew that like, working a salary job, like at the end of the day, you're just capped. You're capped in terms of the amount of money you can make. And you're capped in terms of like, what your contribution is going to be. And so it wasn't like hard to look at the world and see all the most value is being created in the tech industry. Everything's moving online. I just felt like the writing was on the wall. It's like, if I want to have a really great life beyond what I'm living right now, I'm just going to have to take that step back. And I was willing to make that short-term sacrifice because I, you know, I took that leap of faith that it would, it would work out in the long run. Let's look forward then in terms of what does the long game maybe look like for you and what do you see as like potential and or desirable outcomes given what you guys have accomplished so far? Yeah, so where I kind of sit today in my life is we've obviously been really fortunate. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for, for what we've built and accomplished. And, I, you know, I think, you know, Snappa definitely has a, a lot of room to run as a business. I think the next step for me would be to build something around my personal passion as opposed to just here's an opportunity that we see and you know if we launch this we we think we can make some money and build a great business so i would love to get to that point where i theoretically have enough money that i don't have to work anymore and i can use that time strictly to build things that I'm like super passionate about so that if it doesn't work out, I can just try again and not have to worry about like paying my mortgage and and all that kind of stuff. One question about, you know, you mentioned, you know, you're not like big money motivated guy. How do you stay motivated like every day to keep banging away at the business when it is an opportunistic business as opposed to something that you truly identify with? I would say there's two things. So number one is like, kind of just what we've been talking about, which is the motivation is to get it to the point where it's banging out enough cash flow where we can theoretically like put a CEO in place or get to that exit, which we're quote unquote, like set for life so that we can move on to that next thing, which we're deeply passionate about. And it becomes less about money motivation. So I think that's one piece of it. And then the second piece of it is more for like personal satisfaction. When we hit a million dollars in ARR, for me, it was just like, even though it's it's just an arbitrary number, I just had a deep personal satisfaction that like, wow, we, re- we did it. Like we built a seven figure business. In the early days, it just seemed like so far out there. It just seemed that's something that like, only these like crazy smart people know how to do or or are capable of doing. I don't know what the next one is. Like, I don't know if it's 2 million or 5 million or or, or whatever, but there's just some satisfaction of like just seeing that number 
go up and knowing that like we have this incredible team that we're all, you know, working together and we're we're creating value in the world and customers are are digging the tool. It's just so different from like my previous life of pushing paper whereas now it's like we've created something out of thin air that tens of thousands of people around the world are actually using and getting value from. It's a pretty incredible feeling. I think sometimes all of us can overestimate how important like the topic of our business is. Like I've met entrepreneurs that have just a deep personal satisfaction about how well their businesses run and to see how well their customers are served. And it could be in pet furniture or in scuba equipment or whatever. And that person doesn't even have a pet. There's so much personal value in having a platform like that, like in having a platform that pays people that gives them a sense of safety and creativity, being able to like click buttons and have bigger things in the world happen. Part of the theme of my book is like when you sell away those things, you miss them a lot. You miss the fact that you had such a wonderful platform and now what you have is a bunch of dollars in the bank, which you can't go back and just buy that stuff. Yeah, I mean, that really resonates with me. The satisfaction from the team that we built is, it's incredibly fulfilling knowing that like, you know, we're creating jobs. We're actually like contributing to our economy. The people that work for us, we have a great time on even just like the daily chats on Slack. Theoretically, if we sold the business and, you know, have a bunch of dollars in the bank account and I open up my computer and now I don't have that like Slack channel and we're, you know, shooting the shit and, and telling jokes and and all the, the work that we've done that everyone's so proud of. I would definitely miss that incredibly. So there there is that deep satisfaction that like we, you know, we built this team and we are creating value. One more technical thing I want to ask you about is the diversification of revenue into Bitcoin. Something you've written about, I want to put on the tape that the biggest financial mistake I've ever made, had I accepted Bitcoin when DC members wanted to pay for DC BKK tickets in Bitcoin, I would not be talking to you on this podcast right now. I would be drinking a margarita (laughs) in my Mexican villa. (laughs) And so there's this idea of turning a little bit of your revenue stream into a cryptocurrency for customers who want to pay that way. And I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. 2020 has been a crazy year. And uh, I don't know how much time we have on this podcast to cover my thoughts and uh, on all this stuff. In simple terms, you look at all of the debt that's been accumulated by, you know, nation states around the world. You look at all the money printing that's happening. You know, Bank of Canada's balance sheet has gone from like $100 billion to like over $500 billion in, in a matter of months. What does that mean? It basically means that there's a good possibility that our currencies are going to depreciate in terms of purchasing power. With our business, we basically have cash balance in there, a, a war chest, if you will, that you know we save for rainy day or for future endeavors. And we kind of took a hard look at this and said, like, we don't want to be speculating on stocks uh, in the business because you have to have a really long-term view. Bonds are paying out basically 0%. So we just thought it was 
prudent of us to convert a percentage of that cash balance into Bitcoin as a hedge against the future inflation that we think is very likely to happen given all of these events. So that that's kind of our thought process on that. And what percentage did you choose and how did you choose that percentage? The way that I look at Bitcoin is like it's an asymmetric bet, right? So now I obviously don't think it's going to go to zero, but Bitcoin really it's probably either going to become worthless or if it replaces gold as a store of value, we're talking a 50x upside from here. And if it reaches global reserve status, we're talking 100x plus, right? So the way we're looking at it is like, okay, we could either lose everything or we could have 50 to 100x upside from here. So then the question is like, what percentage do you feel comfortable losing? But then on the other hand, you don't have to put that much into it to capture quite a bit of upside. So usually when people ask me like, how much money should I put into Bitcoin? Obviously, it there's a variety of factors, I think, as a good starting point, like everyone needs at least 1% in Bitcoin. And I think 1% to 5% is, is a more appropriate answer, maybe all the way up to 10%, depending on, you know, risk tolerance and whatnot. And then again, you have to ask yourself, like, are you going to be financially ruined if this goes to zero? If that's the case, then maybe you want to scale back. But for a lot of people in in our circles that uh, entrepreneurs that can are, you know, pretty resilient and probably a bit more risk tolerant and have that confidence and ability to like make it back if they lose it. Yeah, I, I think like, you know, one to 10% is is probably a, a good place to be. I have a similar mindset as to you and we haven't done it in our business, but I've personally pushed 10% of my net worth into Bitcoin, exactly based on the thinking you've laid out here today. So I'll just lay that out on the table. Don't think it's for everybody, but it's definitely for me. Talk to me about business partnerships. Where does the friction exist with you and your partner? I've been um, incredibly fortunate with my business partnership with Mark. We started out really as like good friends. And I think it's really important to like really like the person that you're going into business with because it really does become a second marriage. Like, Does it? Is it you feel like you're married. 100%. Yeah. I mean, my my fiance like jokes and laughs all the time that like marks my my second partner or whatever. I can't even imagine the hours that we spent like talking on the phone and and discussing stuff. And obviously like we hang out a lot outside of just like business and stuff like that. We trust each other 100%. And then I think the other thing is the variety of skill sets. So at least from a, a software company, I think a really good place to start is a technical co-founder who's really responsible for the code and the technology. And then having more of a marketing business type co-founder who's kind of focused on everything else. So like in the early days, Mark was just heads down coding all day long. And I was just heads down marketing all day long. And we, you know, just got out of each other's way. We We trusted each other to kind of do the right thing. You just have to have a really good relationship. And it has to be someone that like you genuinely enjoy spending time with. I would say that that's true from my perspective as well. If you just think about it from like skill multiplication, it's not worth it because of all the other stuff you have to do with the person, including trust and conversations and stuff. 
But it's interesting because like Y Combinator, you know, they made it a requirement that you had to have a co-founder. Like they so believed in this idea that one plus one equals three that they said like, you know, startups just like less likely to succeed if you don't have a co-founder. Why do you think that is having been in a partnership and having observed a lot of solo founders as well? Do you really think a solo founder is is at a disadvantage? I think there's two things. So number one, there there is that, I think, skill multiplication. One thing to keep in mind with like Y Combinator is they're kind of expecting to to do the whole like VC route, go the whole nine yards and IPO someday. And so I think it's a bit easier, at least in the beginning, to do that with like two people. For me, I get a ton of value on like the psychological aspect, sharing the journey with someone because there's only so many people that you can have these conversations with because the reality is like 95% of people are just going to work every day and collecting a paycheck. Going through the highs and the lows and and being able to share that with, with someone else and kind of calm each other down when things aren't going good or celebrating the victories with someone else. I think it would just be kind of lonely to, to go at it alone. Which brings me to the reason we had you on the show. You recently tweeted something that sort of caught our attention. Can you read the tweet for us? So the tweet was, in my short career as an entrepreneur, I've definitely experienced higher highs and lower lows compared to working a more traditional day job. One of the things I'm consistently working on is keeping my emotions in check and trying to maintain a healthy equilibrium. All right. So a lot of our interview was about some of those highs. You know, you guys have done some amazing things. How can we share some of the low elements to people who are thinking about entrepreneurship as a path? Some of the lows that like, I'm sure everyone will experience at some point is just that like, lack of progress, or maybe just utter failure to to be quite frank. So I mean, like I was kind of mentioning the first two years of our journey was just non-starters, right? Like projects that just didn't go anywhere. (laughs) And then going into Bootstrap Bay, that moment of like, you know, plateauing and realizing like, all right, this this isn't going to be the thing. Like we we kind of need to move into the the next stuff. Going into Snappa, especially in the early days, you know, we we've had certain like technical difficulties. And I would say more recently, like one of the things that was really hard for me was having to let go of someone that we that we hired. That was uh, that was difficult for me, so Every time that we've gone through one of these low points or come across these like issues, you know, in the earlier days, like I used to really take them to heart and like freak out a little more than than what was necessary. And then after the fact, it always ended up being like way more minor than you originally anticipated. For example, like the first time the site went down, we didn't have the proper like infrastructure in place to like prevent that from happening and so now we do again going back to this like hiring example after that happened we're like okay every single person has to go through sample project does not matter like what the role is or how confident we are it's just absolutely going to be part of the hiring process and so the things that have helped me is every time I come across like a new problem I've essentially trained myself 
to look at it as an opportunity to fix something that's maybe wrong or, or, or address something. And then the other thing is just like always having that long-term view that like, this is just a bump in the road. It's not going to like crumble the business. That helps me like not go to that level where I'm just so down and, and so emotionally drained. It helps me kind of just see past that. One last thing, Chris, I want to ask you about is you've been on the other side of these earbuds thinking about what entrepreneurship might mean for you, how to, how to get involved. What would you say to folks that, you know, this year has really asked them to question their career path or how they've been interacting with business and they want to, they want to take that risk and and sort of uh, join the fun, so to speak. What sort of advice would you have for them? Oh, it's a tough one. Um, That is the toughest one. Yeah. (laughs) Again, it's like, it's sometimes like cliches are cliches for a reason, right? I think, the most important thing really is is to to start and and to do. Unfortunately, in today's society, there's too many people that are clinging on to hope and not enough people that are actually doing. The best way to change your life is is for you to take control and and worry about the things that are within your control uh, as opposed to like hoping that this messed up system is going to start taking care of you. Like it's probably not going to happen. It's really just a combination of learning and doing. So continuing to read the books and listen to the podcast. But at a certain point, you really have to jump in, start doing the work. You know, learning by doing is is often the best strategy. And, you know, actually someone tweeted at me just a few days ago and he was having trouble like almost getting started because it was just thinking like too far ahead and a lot of people are like waiting for the perfect idea and waiting for the perfect business. I always tell people like, don't worry about having the best idea. Don't worry. Like, don't even worry if the business fails or not. You're going to learn so much just by starting. And the fact that you're even working on a business, you'll start to see like, oh, I'm using this tool, but like, it kind of sucks. Like, it would be sweet if like, there is a, you know, a tool that did this instead. Or, you know, wow, I'm working with these like freelancers or there's these agencies and they freaking suck. Like I could do this better. You know what I mean? And so I feel like just running a business will give you so many more ideas and it will develop your skill set to allow you to keep progressing. So if you compare like a job to entrepreneurship, right? And I guess age plays somewhat of a factor, but like if you're starting young at like, you know, in your 20s and going down the entrepreneurship path, like it's almost mathematically impossible that like a job will throughout your career, like end up having higher upside than like entrepreneurship if you just like keep at it. And I get it. Like, I'm not one of these people that's like, oh, you everyone has to be an entrepreneur. Like, it's just not realistic. And some people like aren't cut out for it. But if you are cut out for entrepreneurship and like, you have the the skills and and you have the the drive and and the ambition. It's kind of like the stock market, right? Like if you invest in a stock and your holding period is like one to three years, there's a likely chance that like you might end up with less money than what you first invested. Whereas like if you invest in like the S and P five hundred and your holding period is like twenty to thirty years, it's almost impossible that you're not going to come out ahead. And so I kind of see entrepreneurship as the same thing. It's like, it's volatile in the short term, but in the long term, it just seems like a no-brainer to me. 
Big shout out to Christopher Gimmer of Snappa.com. Swing by the show. A lot of the concepts in this episode, stuff that Bossman and myself have been talking about a great, great deal. You know, where are we going to take the experience and knowledge and resources that we've gained in our entrepreneurial journey and how are we going to reapply it to get to that next level that we're looking to get to? I love Chris's analogy there of that investment in this skill set of entrepreneurship, of owning your own assets. You just don't know a lot of times where it's all going to lead. But I think when you step back and look at the systems you're participating in, certainly an excellent long-term investment. And one of the few, again, like we talk about a lot, that you can really go from scratch to wealth by following paths similar to what Chris was talking about here today. And I just got to mention, really enjoyed speaking with Chris. We have a lot of things in common, and uh, it was just a really, really fun, inspiring chat. And I hope you found the same. Thanks again to Chris for coming by, sharing with us his story on the show. And thanks to our sponsor, Earth Class Mail, Com. So excited to have them on board. Do go check out their services over earthclassmail.com. And that is it for this week. We will be back next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.